Now let me shift gears a little bit. We have been, oops, I don't want to throw that on the floor. It's a nice bulletin. Rochelle and Ricky worked so hard to put those together. We have been in a series in the Gospel of John. And we come to chapter 19. And chapter 19 reminds us of a problem. It's called the problem of evil. None of you doubt that there is evil in the world. The problem is that the reality of evil, evil in the world does cause people to wonder or to not believe that there is a God in the world. If, if God is good and if God is sovereign, then why do things like this happen? Why do natural disasters happen? Why do the horrible, evil things that occur in the midst of life, the troubles and the tragedies, why do these things happen? If God is good and God is sovereign, couldn't he prevent that? Either God is not able or God does not care. Now, we know there's trouble in life. We know that there are times when the bottom falls out. One of the reasons I keep several copies of a particular book by Larry Crabb, it's called Shattered Dreams. I keep several of those on my shelf because I, uh, this was a book that in the midst of one of our, our um, shattered dreams, if, uh, if I may say so, this book was really helpful to Julie and I. It was re recommended to me by a dear friend who had gone through a, a, a tragedy in their family. And... Uh, so I've passed that along to others along the way. There's another book that I just came across. In fact, I put a few copies on that shelf uh, there. It's, it's not supposed to be this way. I like the title. It's true. And I, I like the fact that the picture on the front cover is upside down. And life feels that way. These, there are copies of this on that back shelf. Those books on that shelf, by the way, those are for you to please take and use. Now, if you have trouble, um, have trouble taking something that's just given to you freely... You must not be a Christian. If you, if you hesitate because you've thought, no, I want that to go to somebody else. I want these good books that are here to, be, to go to somebody else rather than merely to me. Well, great. Just take some of your money and put it in an envelope, write books on it, and drop it in the offering. That'll be just fine. You also must be a Christian. But uh, those are there for you to use, and uh, there will be a run on it's not supposed to be this way because we've had a little advert for it here in the, at the start of the message, so you want to get one of those if you can. But John 19 puts this question before us. If God is good, if God is sovereign, so he would want to and he is able to, then why would there be this evil as it is and as we know it is, as we know that it exists in the midst of the world? How can those go together? Put another way, does the presence of evil prove the absence of God? For many people it seems to. And even for many of us, there are times in the midst of the troubles and the heartaches, the crises in life, there will be times when for us, the presence of evil means at least the distance of God. But what if that's not true? In fact, I think John chapter 19 screams that it's not true. Now, now John chapter 19 is a, is a difficult passage. It's, it's, a different, it's a hard chapter to preach. It's a hard chapter to spend a Sunday on in church if it's not Good Friday or Easter. First of all, because it's a graphic and brutal chapter. 
the kinds of details, the, the horrendous things that one person does to another that are described in this chapter, it's, it's, it's hard for us to read. We don't want this to be so. But it's, it's, it's also a hard chapter because it's so familiar to us as Christians. We know that Jesus died on the cross. The kids knew that. They know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And the reality of that, as easy as that is to say, we easily can end up glossing over the hard reality of it. It's familiar to us, and so over time and repeating, we become desensitized to it. It's kind of like, some of you are older, think back many, many years ago, the first time you saw a horror movie, you say, well, I'm a Baptist, I don't watch horror movies, well, good for you. Think back to the first time when you saw a horror movie. And, and, and... Way back in the old days, you know, when they had black and whites and there was no sound, they, they, they would just hint at something that bad that happened. Or you could tell that there was something horrible, but it was off camera. But now, movies like that have to show all of it in its horrible, gruesome detail because... Doing it the way they used to do it wouldn't work anymore. It wouldn't have the same effect as it did then now because we've gotten used to it. Our souls have gotten calloused to these things. And a chapter like this could be like this, like that, where we, we re read through it in a way that, that it, it doesn't have the same impact anymore, the impact that it should have on us. Because this chapter is meant to be horrible. It's meant to be brutal. This chapter is meant to show us this is what humanity is capable of. But in the midst of that, this chapter does show us the sovereignty of God in the midst of such terrible tragedy because this chapter also shows us what God is in fact capable of. Now, I want us to read through this chapter. In fact, we're going to read through the whole chapter, as familiar as it is to us. But first, I want to, I want to set the stage. I want to move you back in time. Pretend that you're at the, towards the end of the first century. Maybe it's A.D. 85 or so. A man named Domitian is the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he's like the second version of, of Nero. He is Nero 2.0. He starts out okay, but he quickly goes off the rails. And he is, a, uh, he is a cruel man, and he's also paranoid. He, he suspects people are out to get him. He suspects people are plotting and scheming. He, he, he's suspicious of disloyalty. And he likes to be called, by the way, Lord and God, okay? And people that won't call him Lord and God, he suspects they're probably disloyal. They might be plotting against him and Rome in general. And this is the environment now, towards the end of the first century, that Christians in Asia Minor, where, where, whom John has been leading and pastoring, overseeing these churches, and now he writes this gospel to them, who have experienced certainly disrespect, mocking, marginalization, but also even martyrdom. They have been persecuted. They have, they have paid a cost for their faith and their following Jesus. 
and for their refusal to call the emperor Lord and God because only Jesus is Lord and God. And they're paying a price for it. The implications of their faith set them out as different in society. They don't quite fit, and they pay a price for that. That's not completely unlike our generation, certainly in many parts of the world today. And, and so maybe it's not so difficult for us to imagine the fear that arises, the carefulness, the not wanting to put your head up, the concern about what will others think if I say this or do that. With that in mind, let's, let's read John chapter 19. Follow along with me in your Bible or the church Bible in front of you. We'll be on page, I think, 905. John chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Look at him. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid. He was afraid already. He was afraid of, of, of uh, the, what the, how the crowd was responding, what they would say, what report would go back to Rome about how he handled the situation. But now he's got other concerns. In his Roman mythical background, he's heard stories of the gods that came down to earth and cohabitated with humans, and there were sons of the gods, and is Jesus one of those? Is he not only going to have the emperor perhaps after him, but maybe one of the gods as well? And so he's even more afraid according to his superstitions, not according to faith. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered the headquarters again. He said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabata. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So, they delivered, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is an Aramaic called Golgotha, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on the other, either side, and Jesus between them, in their midst. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
And many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and Greek, so everybody could read it. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. Then the soldiers had... When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but... Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home to care for her as his own mother. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high holy day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. If you read it thoughtfully, imagining the scene... And undoubtedly, your mind was filling in some gaps from the other Gospels as well. You recall the horror of this setting. This is a terrible thing. This is a horrible day. How could God allow this to his own son? You wonder those questions, God, but I'm your child. I have followed you. I have trusted you. Why have you allowed this to happen? We'll ramp that up a few notches for the setting that is before us here. Does this show 
God uncaring? Does this show that God is not near? Does the presence of this kind of evil, in fact, prove the absence of God? Or is there something else? Well, one of the things it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt is it proves what humanity is capable of. We think about evil in the world. We think about the bad things that people do one to another. And we ask God, why did he allow this to happen? Well, what about who did it? Look at what humanity is capable of, one person upon another in this chapter. He's flogged, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's humiliated, he's ridiculed, he's tormented, and yet three times declared to be innocent. Just before chapter 19 starts, and then twice more, Pilate legally declares him to be without any guilt, and yet this is what they've done to an innocent man. There's the stupidity of the superstition and the myth like Pilate's fear of sons of the God that that causes them to go along. There's the using of one, one person as a political pawn in the political posturing for power. First of all, the Jews are, are playing these games against Pilate. He claimed to be a king. If you, don't, if you release him, you are not Caesar's friend because no one who claims to be a king can be Caesar's friend. That's treason. Now you say, well, okay, I, yeah, we, we get the game they're playing there, but let's ramp it up a couple notches for Pilate here. Pilate is in his position because of his mentor. He was the protege of, of uh, he was lifted up by a man named Sejanus. And Sejanus was, he aspired himself to be emperor, but was not. He, didn't, he wasn't in the right family at the right time. And so he, he is very close to Tiberius. He is a kingmaker and a mover and shaker in Rome. Yet it comes, there comes about a time when it becomes evident that Sejanus wants the power for himself. And Tiberius has him arrested and executed. And those who are in his close circles, those who are his followers, those who are loyal to him, also are arrested and many of them are executed. And Pilate was mentored by Sejanus. So Pilate at this point, in fact, this, this all occurs in AD 33. This all recently occurred before Jesus is brought before. And they know this. And so they know how sensitive at this point Pilate is to the charge that he is not a friend of Caesar. That he cannot allow any whiff of disloyalty to come to the emperor's ears. And so he's manipulated by their suggestions and the rumoring that they're going to do. We'll say this without even quite saying it. He turns that around. Pilate turns that around to reassert Rome's supremacy over the Jews. First, they forced him into a corner. And, and Pilate, the Roman governor, is now doing the bidding of the high priest. Well, he turns that around very quickly, and he gets them to publicly acknowledge that they have no king but Caesar. He gets them to shout out in unison, crucify. Shall I crucify your king? And they say, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. This on the preparation of Passover, which is a celebration of God as Israel's king and deliverer. And they say, we have no king but Rome's. So you see the posturing back and forth for power. Pilate exemplifies in this story the redefining of right 
the jettison of justice for fear of people and preserving power. Politics takes precedence. His precarious position must be preserved, and he'll do whatever it takes, no matter whose good life he ruins in the process. Politics hasn't changed so much over the centuries. Now, crucifixion itself, it's not merely a judicial punishment. It's not merely a form of execution. Crucifixion is a horrendous, torturous, enforced submission to Rome's might. This was for rebels against Rome. You dared to defy Rome's power in your life, then with your dying breaths, you and your whole body and soul will be ultimately submitted to Rome in this horrendous process of crucifixion that might stretch out over two or three days or more. It's the ultimate submission to Rome for those who would resist their power. This is a perverted, spiteful vengeance upon those who had been declared guilty, even if they were not guilty. Amidst the torturous suffering, the pain, the purposeless shaming of a defenseless victim, uh, stripped naked, brutal soldiers reducing themselves to to making a game of his his, uh, stained and bloodied and torn clothing, even the sour wine given, that seems like a, like a bit of mercy in the midst of the, of the torture. He says, I thirst, and they give him some soured vinegar wine to drink. What is that all about? Well, that's to make it last longer. He refused to drink earlier, remember? And that also would have had some medication, some pain dulling aspect to it. And he refused the drink earlier. Now he accepts the drink. And the drink was there because we would not want these victims to expire too quickly. We'll keep them alive. We'll make them suffer longer. If the death needed to be hurried, after all, it's a, it's a special day today. You know, Passover is coming. We can't have these bodies hanging up there and defiling our wonderful religious Sabbath celebrations. And so to maintain our religious purity, quick, let's Hurry this along. Now, if you need to hurry the execution along, they could be dispatched very quickly with a sword or a spear. But no, they break the legs. That doesn't, it does bring death more rapidly, but it intensifies the whole crucifixion process. It intensifies the pain and the suffering and the torture, even as it brings death to a quicker outcome. And why do they do that? Why ramp up the suffering? Why increase the brutality? Because we have got a religious festival to go to, and we must keep it pure. This is what humanity is capable of. In the name of Roman justice, in the name of religion, their evil meets and exceeds the very worst of the beasts of the jungle when they have been themselves made differently. They've been made in the very image of God. And yet, fallen and broken in sin as we are, even in our best virtues, like justice or religion, as fallen and broken as humanity is, even in our best virtues, you see our worst violations. This is what humanity is capable of. And it's not just the priest. 
It's not just Pilate. It's all humanity. It's Jew and Gentile. It's, it's wherever fear takes place of faith. It's wherever religion and politics apart from God drive people to do horrendous things to one another. False accusations, manipulating the masses, a corrupt condemnation that comes out of our own compromised convictions. It's okay. We'll declare him guilty because it's going to accomplish this end for us. This is what humanity is capable of. Yet none of this evil is of God. Did you notice that? This is what people are doing. This is what humans are doing. None of this evil is of God. There's only, in fact, in the midst of this, whether it's in the brutality of some, whether it's in the false accusations, whether it's in the mocking, whether it's in the crowd going along with it all and cheering it on just for the spectacle of it, whether it's those who in fear withdraw and say nothing, don't say no, stop, this cannot be. There's only one person in the story that has no guilt. There's only one truly upright and guiltless man in the midst of any of this, and that man is Jesus. That man is the Son of God. He is the one who shows us that in the midst of humanity's worst, this is what God is capable of. Does the presence of evil prove the absence of God? Or does the presence of evil evil actually show the desperate situation that humanity is in and that only God can change this. Jesus is the Son of God and His sovereignty, God's sovereignty in the situation is clearly declared through the story. Jesus won't answer Pilate. He doesn't have to. This is His silent sovereignty. He's not answerable to Pilate unless He wants to give Pilate an answer. He chooses to say nothing that fulfills Isaiah 53. As a lamb before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. The sovereignty of God in the circumstances is seen repeatedly in John's emphasis, one event after another, that God's word is being fulfilled. God said it had to be this way. That's why one of the kids said no. He couldn't say no because God had already determined this is what it is. And Jesus has said, I, am, I must drink the cup thy father has prepared for me. Not my will, but thy will be done. God is sovereign here. The dividing of his garments fulfills Psalm 22. The declaration that he thirsted, and when I thirsted, they gave me sour wine to drink. That's Psalm 69. The fact that none of his bones are broken fulfills Scripture, Psalm 33. That he was pierced fulfills Isaiah 53 again, but also Zechariah 12. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And it goes on to say, and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever looks on him whom they pierced would not perish but have everlasting life. That's what God is capable of. In the worst of humanity, here is God. And in verse 10, verse 10 and 11, there's a clear statement of God's sovereignty in the midst of this evil. Look at it again. Chapter 19 and verse 10. Pilate said to him, you'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus' answer here is his longest statement anywhere in this chapter. 
He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God is absolutely sovereign here. Make no mistake. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. So along with God's sovereignty in the matter, there is human responsibility for what it is that men are doing on this day. The two are not exclusive. The two fit right together. God is absolutely in charge, and yet they are completely responsible for what they are doing, even to the point of greater sin or lesser sin. So God is sovereign here. God has chosen his king, no matter what the crowd says, no matter what Pilate or the priests say. God has chosen his king, Psalm 2, and yet God chooses to enter personally into this horror, into the very worst that humanity can do. That's his humility. That's Philippians chapter 2. That though he was in the form of God, though he existed as God, he did not consider his, his equality with God something to be held on to and clung to. But he emptied himself. He laid aside his prerogatives of deity. And he came in the form of humanity. And coming as a man, he humbled himself even to the death on the cross. The one who is absolutely sovereign humbles himself. There is his humility. And yet God who first bears for us will judge among us for what we are guilty of. The one who delivered to you to me has the greater sin. We are accountable. We will be accountable. But notice, God does not judge humanity for our guilt, our sin, before first stepping into it for us in our place. Do you remember the scene in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, where there God sits on his throne and he holds in his hand this scroll with seals. And this scroll, as the seals are open, is going to be the judgments upon humanity upon the earth. One horrible judgment after another. And the cry goes out across heaven, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals and to begin to roll out judgment? And there's not anybody found. None of the angels, none of those humans gathered there. And then there's one. Like a lamb slain, the Son of God steps forward and takes the scroll. And he alone is worthy to open its seals. He alone is worthy to commence the judgment because he alone has first entered personally into that judgment himself for us, every one of us. So nobody who is now about to be judged for their guilt and sin and rebellion against God, nobody who wasn't first interceded for by Jesus himself when the Son stepped in in their place. See how much he loves us? You see what God is capable of? Entering in first what we ourselves deserve for ourselves. This is where they live in A.D. 85. This is where you and I live, in that same humility with authority. He is the Son of God, and yet he humbles himself. He bears what he doesn't have to bear for the good of others, for the good of those who don't deserve it, in fact. 
And John would call this humble gathering of saints, and he would say, my beloved children, he would say to them, you are not victims. You are Jesus' agents in the midst of this world to go and to do greater works than he has done in his place, standing in his stead as ministers of reconciliation. With the word of reconciliation, Jesus isn't coming back to, to be incarnate again in every generation. No, he's incarnate in us, and we are him in the midst of whatever mocking, whatever ridicule, whatever persecution this world can pour out upon us, we enter into his same humility, having as a child of God the same authority that we are his own. And yet we would willingly give of ourselves. We can choose not to. We can withdraw. We can say, I don't like them. They are mean to me. I'm not going to say anything. So we can. Or we can tell them anyway, even if we might be mocked for it. We can, we can speak of our faith and we can describe in the midst of somebody's trouble the hope that is within us that has upheld us through troubles. Or we can keep it to ourselves. We, are, we, we have our own authority in that sense, and yet he calls us to give ourselves away, no matter what the cost is, for the sake of others, he who did it first for us. You see, so those, those Christians in, in AD 85, Christians today, we're in a real similar boat. There are pressures. There is intimidation. There's a cost involved somehow relationally or socially or interpersonally. There's, there's a price to be paid. And yet in following Jesus, we'll pay it, even if we're afraid, even in the midst of fear. And it's surprising that for not really deserving it, and our hesitancy, our fear in the past really don't qualify us for it, and yet Jesus gives us wonderful and glorious opportunities. Can I introduce you to a, to a man named Joseph, who was also a follower of Jesus, but he kept it to himself. He was afraid what people would say to him, or how it might cost him in his position. He kept it to himself. And yet God comes to him and he, said, he says, Joseph, could I borrow, I know you've got a new tomb, and I wonder, could I, could I borrow your tomb for a couple of days for my son? Could I lay him there? It would just be for a couple of days. God gives Joseph, he doesn't deserve it. He's been a quiet coward up till now, and yet God gives him this wonderful place in this drama of redemption. And then there's Nicodemus right along with us. And Nicodemus, he's, he's been kind of quiet. He's, he's, he, he spoke up once. He came to Jesus by night and maybe didn't want people to see him coming. But later on, he did speak up. Wait a minute, this process doesn't seem quite right, guys. He didn't say a lot. But Nicodemus comes in at the end of the story again. Why is that? Why does John bring him back up? Well, he brought him in the, in the beginning, so maybe it's nice. It's, it's a nice effect in, in, in terms of the story to bring him up again at the end. But maybe he brings him up at the end because we're supposed to remember him from the beginning. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And here we've seen what that gave really meant. It wasn't merely to live for a while amongst us in pretty miserable conditions as they were, but to die in the most horrendous and miserable kind of condition. And that for us. So that whoever would believe in him would not perish, 
but have everlasting life. That's what God is capable of. We've seen what humanity is capable of. You know what you and I are capable of. And you know how you and I don't measure up, but look at what God is capable of in the face of it, in spite of it. Look what God has done. See how he loves you. God will not us. God loves us so much he will not allow us to ignore the horror of sin and its separation from him. In fact, every natural, we talk about what humanity does, but what about the brokenness of creation? What about the hurricane that roars through and wipes out lives unexpectedly? What about earthquakes and all kinds of natural disasters as the whole creation itself groans and travails together until now? We are broken people in a broken world. And every one of those horrible natural disasters reminds us of it. That in humanity as the regents over the earth, in our fall, in our rebellion, not have we only broken ourselves, but we have broken this world with us. And we are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. And every natural disaster, every trouble in life, every tragedy and sorrow and heartbreak and death reminds us of the same thing. The weakness of our own mortality shouts it in our face. We desperately need God's eternal life. There is no way out of this on our own, on our terms. And God has made that inignorably clear. He would be cruel not to. He would be cruel to allow us to escape with the, with the folly notion that everything is just fine when it is not. When it has gone terribly wrong and you better flee to the Savior while there is still opportunity. So God allows us to feel it. So we will know the situation that we are in and that you and I who know his Savior can in the midst of the hurt, in the, whether it's in our lives or the one close to us, in the midst of that we can also point to where hope can be found. You see, God has not stood apart. God has not stood afar off and shouted down to us what we need to know. God has entered in. God has come as close as he possibly could to be in it with us and even for us. Every act of evil actually serves to amplify how exceedingly abundant God's love in Jesus truly is. And so also, your kindness, your forgiveness, your long-suffering and enduring of difficult people is a demonstration of the kindness and the forbearance and the long-suffering of God toward those who don't deserve him, even like we ourselves. You are for them the likeness of Jesus that they also might believe, that they also might share the hope and the forgiveness that you have. And so what do we do in the midst of the trouble? We don't deny it. We don't say, oh, it's not, 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 it's, it's not that bad. Oh, it's going to get better. No, it could get worse. But we will grieve with those who grieve. And we will say, you're right. It is not supposed to be like this. We, we will grieve with those who grieve. And we'll say, you know what? God agrees with the ache in your heart. God himself says to you, my child, it's not supposed to 
be like this. It never was. And yet now sin has come. But he has not stood afar off. He himself came right into the ugly middle of it with us and for us. So that any of us, even right here today, can by as simply as God, I believe you concerning Jesus. John 3.16 says that God so loved that he gave his son in that horror so that anyone who believes in him would not perish. They would have his eternal life. They would be restored into right, ongoing, forever relationship with God, not separated from him. And that by believing, by saying, God, I believe you concerning your son. I trust him in my place that he covers for my guilt. And God says, my child, come home. It's as simple as that. You can pray that along with somebody else. You can say that in your own heart right where you sit. In the next song we sing, because that song says this, come as you are. Our hearts break. The hurts of this life for us, for us and the people around us are very real. They are terribly real. And that's why there's a cross. That's why Jesus came. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Lord, we will glory in the cross. We will boast in it. We will say, there, there is how my God loves me. Father, thank you. Lord, I would pray this morning, first of all, that there is one here that has doubted because of the troubles of life and the hurt and the pain. They've doubted that God really cares. Lord, would they look at the cross again and see, oh, yes, he cares. This is how much he loves us. His own son died in our place because of our guilt, because of our rebellion, because of humanity's running away from him. Oh, Lord, that that one, that they would believe this morning, God, I believe you about Jesus who died for me. I believe you, God, about Jesus. Lord, would you then give us courage in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the cost of it, in the midst of the hurts that we will experience in life, and even at the hands of others and sometimes one another, oh God, would you extend in us forgiveness and mercy and long-suffering and forbearance that shows something of Jesus to the people around us, that they might ask us about the hope that is within us, that longer views that, that, that we have that you've promised us that makes the present matter not in the same way. Oh, Father, use us for the people around us, that through us you would show us your love for them in Jesus. We ask that, Father, use this offering for that now. These gifts that are received, that which is given, Father, would you use it that Jesus would be known and glorified, that they would see how much our God loves us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.